Hello and welcome to the February edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and coming up I'll be speaking to Deborah Baines, who's the project lead for the AJR's My Story and Second Generation projects. We'll be finding out what they are and how you can get involved a little later on. And I'm Tony Honigberg and I will be talking to Michal Emanuel, who is a Kashrut researcher at the Kosher London Beth Din, about the new Really Jewish Food Guide 2020. I'm Clive Roslin, and I'll be speaking to Lucy Houston, a violinist from Ensemble Berletta, who is a musician who is going to talk about the music of Mozart and Brahms through one of the darkest periods in Austria's history. I will also be speaking to Joe and Ariella Novik, who are mental health campaigners, and that is because that they tragically lost a member of their family to suicide. And we'll be exploring what the Jewish community is being encouraged to do, as are many other communities, in order to raise awareness. And I'll also be talking to Leon Silver, who is the president of the East London Central Synagogue, that is in Nelson Street, Whitechapel, who have had a problem in recent weeks where they have had a collapsed ceiling and are looking to do repairs. And as if all of that isn't enough, we'll also be hearing from our Jewish domestic goddess, Denise Phillips, who will be speaking all about the month of love. Yes, Valentine's is the subject for Denise's slot for this month, and our rabbinic thought for the month will come from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Mazorti Synagogue. With a roundup of the Jewish news this month, I'm Vivian Krieger. At the beginning of his first official visit to Israel, the Prince of Wales was amongst 40 world leaders and 100 survivors who took part in the largest international event in the country's history, the 5th World Holocaust Forum at Yad Vashem. It came ahead of the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Prince Charles spoke of the privilege it was to meet survivors and his pride at the fact his grandmother was one of the righteous among the nations. He said the lessons of the Holocaust are searingly relevant to this day, as hatred and intolerance, as he put it, still lurk in the human heart. The German president, Frank Walter Steinmeier, also spoke and acknowledged that the worst crime in the history of humanity was committed by his countrymen. He had, he said, the heavy historical burden of guilt. Prince Charles was also visiting the occupied Palestinian territories and carrying out engagements around Bethlehem. The Board of Deputies has urged the BBC to apologise for a report about Holocaust Memorial Day that linked the Israel-Palestine conflict to the Shoah. International correspondent Ola Gerin had done a moving four-minute report which many said was poignant and pointed, showing black and white shots of the dead and dying from 75 years ago. But some objected to her comment that, quote, the State of Israel is now a regional power which for decades has occupied Palestinian territories, but some will always see their nation through the prism of persecution and survival. Support for Gerin, though, including from Jews, was also widely reported. Rabbi Danny Rich is to quit as Liberal Judaism chief executive at the end of March after 15 years. Rabbi Rich, who's 58, was previously Minister of Kingston Liberal Synagogue for 20 years. He said he was moving to pastures new. The movement's president, Rabbi Andrew Goldstein, said Danny Rich had helped ensure that liberal Judaism continues to be a creative, progressive and radical movement. The Mosaic Progressive Jewish Community has had its application for a new permanent home in Stanmore approved. Harrow Council's planning committee gave it the green light for the redevelopment of an old petrol station, so the community will be able to relocate from its current site in West Harrow. The plans also allow for nine new residential units. And finally, Yuri Geller has applied for a government role after Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's chief special advisor, posted a job advert on his personal blog calling for true wild cards, weirdos and misfits to work for Downing Street. Mr Geller put himself forward saying his genuine powers would be an asset. A source close to the psychic said Yuri is 100% serious. Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, let's get straight to it on a bumper edition of The Jewish Views because you are listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, you may recall a few months back, we heard about the work the Association of Jewish Refugees are doing with their Refugee Voices Project, a Holocaust testimony consisting of films of survivors talking about their path to survival. Well, now we can hear about another couple of projects. One of them is called My Story and the other is Second Generation. 
generation. This also features stories of survivors and the children of survivors. This time in print and also a bit more audio as well. Anyway, you don't need me to tell you about it. I suggest we find out from a person in the know. Joining us now is Deborah Barnes, who runs the My Story and Second Generation projects. And I'm delighted to say that she is here with us on this month's edition of The Jewish Views. Deborah, first and foremost, I suppose we have to start with, because I would, I'm going to take for granted, based on that we did have AJR on the podcast a couple of months ago, I'm hoping that people have listened, and by now they know what the AJR do and how they do it. So why not let's dive straight in to the My Story Project, which I think sounds absolutely fascinating because I love the thought of this. This is Holocaust and survival records, but not necessarily in the way that people might be forgiven thinking that we would normally do it, say, through audio, through visual. Yeah, there are a few differences with the My Story Project. Firstly, we produce a book for members rather than a video testimony. This is done through the use of volunteers so we recruit volunteers we train them and then we introduce them to one of our members who wants to tell their story and hasn't yet had a book published telling their story and they visit them on a regular on a regular basis recording their story and this then eventually gets turned into a professionally designed and printed book for them we've been running it for around three years I'm the lead project coordinator. We have three other coordinators running the project all over the country. And to date, we have printed around 18 books. And we have lots of books currently in production. It is quite a lengthy process because obviously when something goes to print, we need to make sure it's absolutely right. We like the member themselves to get involved with the editing process and... The families are always delighted with the resulting book. Well, let's talk a bit about that editing process because obviously someone doesn't just wake up one morning and say, right, I'm going to put together a book because I've spoken to enough authors and publishers now to know that that's not quite the way the process works. But I would imagine with something like this, which is completely sensitive and very much based on an individual's life story that possibly they haven't even told before, how do you actually go about beginning the process? Is I assume it's something as basic as walking up to them and saying, look, do you mind if we were to put your story in print or do they have come to you? Members are referred on a... Sometimes they're referred by the social workers if the social worker thinks that it would be beneficial for them to tell their story. We've written about it in the AGR journal, which all our members read, and sometimes they approach me or it's through word of mouth. I have a waiting list of members who want to tell their story now, so that's really not a problem. Which must be a great feeling for you. It is, it is. (laughs) Obviously, time is of the essence. We need to get these books written as quickly as possible. And... As I said, I do have to manage their expectations when I first meet them and tell them it can take up to one year until the produced book will be printed. So, But very much like our very own JW3, this sounds to me, for a charity, quite a, an expensive project. So as I say, JW3 is a charity, AJR is a charity. How do you go about funding it? The project is funded completely by AJR. It's part of the money that we have for holocaust commemoration and education it comes from there it's completely free of charge to the member and we do rely heavily on the help of volunteers as well now do some of those volunteers form in the way of second generation because of course second generation is very much another part of the work that you in particular do where you actually work with the next generation of survivors and refugees So how does the second generation project actually work that you're involved in? The second generation project, this has started very recently. It's when we realised that over 30% of our members are second generation. And so we wanted to engage with these members and ask them what sort of activities and interests they would like what sort of activities they would like us to provide for them what are their interests what would they like from AJR we started doing this by creating a survey where we asked our members and also other second generation who are not yet members of AJR what they would like from us and 
it was very interesting to see that a lot of second generation didn't realise that they were eligible to join AJR, which of course they are. So we also asked them what they would like us to provide for them and something that they a lot of people were interested in were educational and historical forums and sessions and that is why we have decided to hold a two-day international forum on the second generation which we're holding in April on the 21st and 22nd at Stamford Bridge in conjunction with the Chelsea Foundation Say No to Anti-Semitism campaign. So we're very excited about that. But you see, Deborah, I'm really sorry. I have to tackle the proverbial elephant. If someone is a second generation, then technically they are no longer a refugee. And therefore, doesn't that kind of, as it were, defeat the object of why the Association of Jewish Refugees started in the first place the association of jewish refugees was set up in 1941 by the refugees themselves who came primarily from germany and vienna and it's been going strongly ever since our first priority is of course the social and welfare services of our first generation members but as the numbers of first generation dwindle and the numbers of second generation increase we are looking more to our, and in fact this is now included in the organisational strategy, that we are supporting more Holocaust commemoration, memorialisation, how to ensure that the stories of the first generation are not forgotten and how we can help Holocaust teaching and learning institutions, not doing it directly ourselves, but by supporting other organisations who do this through grants. Okay, well then in that case, the question has to be, if someone is listening to this, who thinks to themselves, well, I rather like the sound of the second generation project, or I rather like the sound of getting involved in the My Story project, either way, where do they go for more information and how can they get involved? So all, all information on, on all our projects is available on our website, which is www.ajr.org.uk. My name is Deborah Barnes. My email address is deborah at ajr.org.uk and anybody is very welcome to email me directly for more information on either of these projects. I'll be very interested to hear from people. Fantastic. Deborah Barnes, who is project lead for My Story and Second Generation from the Association of Jewish Refugees. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. As you know, there's one thing that Jewish people are notoriously fond of, and that is food. Of course, those who keep a kosher lifestyle can find it something in the way of a challenge in this country. Juggling between what one buys in a kosher shop versus the foods you can buy from the more, let's say, secular stores. Luckily, the Kosher London Best Inn has continued their work to help on that front by releasing the latest version of their Kosher Food Guide or the Really Jewish Food Guide 2020. It's available now from numerous retailers. To discuss it further and find out what's new this year, we can speak to Kashrut researcher Michal Emanuel, who joins us now. Let, before we talk about the Kosher Food Guide, I'd, I'd like to jump back just a few years to when I was young and most foods if not all foods didn't have a label saying they were kosher or kashrut unless you got to somewhere like Pesach when you had additional labels stuck on foods which said they were kosher for Pesach. How did the KLBD get involved and sort out what could be labelled and what couldn't be labelled? So yeah you're right in in recent years we made great accomplishments in getting more product certified so finding more products with a logo i mean there's now in the customer guide there's now over 2,000 products which are not just approved and that we're saying they're suitable for kosher they're actually kosher certified which is a higher guarantee of kosher and also it's much easier for the consumers to see the label on and know that it's kosher a lot, a lot of things, although they are kosher, still don't have labels on them, though, do they? Some of the the sweet items or biscuits or something like that, they may not have a hexture on them. There are some certified products where the companies choose for whatever reason not to put the logo on. And 
that's their choice and that doesn't undermine the kosher in any way. But then there are also lots of products included in the guide which are not actually kosher certified. They've been approved based on correspondence with the manufacturers and that's really most of the products in the kosher guide. We're just listing them as kosher based on our research. So those don't have a logo on. With, with those ones that don't have the logo on then, which you say are kosher based on your research, do you go down and look at the factories and look at the suppliers of the ingredients? For most of these products, the main research is carried out by correspondence. Occasionally, there'll be a factory visit, and we get detailed information about the ingredients, supplies of ingredients, any undeclared processing aids or fats that could be used in production. And also, another very important principle is what other products are produced on the same equipment, because we know that the equipment will absorb flavors, so we've got to be careful about non-kosher products made on the same equipment. And we get that information. It all goes to the rabbis and the Zionim and they review if they're happy to approve the product. And then once a product makes it to the guide and is approved, we then have to review the status to make sure that nothing's changed, nothing in the factory, no change of ingredients or formulations or no no other changes that would affect the kosher status. So it's really a constant thing that we're working on to keep to keep our information up to date. Is there a checklist that you're looking out for? Well, the main issues are the ingredients. Are there any ingredients of non-kosher origin? Any ingredients that of grape juice, which is also problematic for kosher? And then we then we're going to look at, as I said, the undeclared processing aids or leaf agents, things that are not mentioned on the ingredients but are used in production and could affect the kosher status. And then the shared equipment, whether there's any products on the line that are not kosher. If a factory does want to put a hexa on their product, does that cost them extra money to do that? Yeah, the kosher certification is, does cost them money, but then they're authorised to use our logo and they can promote their products as kosher, especially if they want to get to, to sell them to some export market. Some, some markets are looking for kosher. Yes. Uh, I mean, if you had a factory, I, mean, I know this doesn't come under the KLBD, but someone like Kellogg's, who is under the Manchester Beth Din, do they have someone in the factory on a regular basis or continually just monitoring? Would you do that? They, the certified companies have regular factory visits to monitor the situation and to make sure there aren't any changes. What's new for 2020 in the cash route guide? So there's lots of new, very exciting products. One of the very exciting products, would, I think, is I think one of the most exciting products this year would be the Warburton's Fruit Loaf. We did certify a lot of Warburton's products about a year or so ago, but now the Fruit Loaf is kosher, which people are very excited about. <laughs> Other interesting products, some meat-free products, there's a company called Meatless Farm, which is a new mm-hmm. company that you can find in Sainsbury's and Morrison's. There's also some Gosh meat-free products, lots of gluten-free products very exclusive gluten-free biscuits from the company Pruitt. So we always try to to increase our range of gluten-free products and dairy-free products, but those on special diets, they don't lose out. Do you have lots of people that drop out of this every year? Or do you find that the people that you have tend to stay in the kosher food guide all the time? Well, at the beginning of the of the kashrut guide, we have a special section of important changes. So we will write there any, any products that have changed either become from power of to dairy or become not kosher or possibly they have been delisted because we can't get up to date information. But most of the time we can continue to list the products. You know, we try very hard to, to keep them in because, you know, people will be disappointed if they get dropped. But occasionally if we're not able to get the information or there's something that's changed, then we do have to drop products. But on the other hand, there are products that were not okay that do become okay. I mean, something very exciting this year for kosher consumers in the UK was the Skittles, which came back on the list. They were not kosher for a time because they contained the carmine, the red food colouring, oh, which yes. is from cochineal. Yeah. But they've made them vegetarian and now we're able to list them again as suitable for kosher. So it, it kind of works both ways, really. And finally, what's the price of the guide? And the guide retails at nine ninety five. You can get it from your Jewish bookstores, kosher shops, and if you'd like to order a guide online, you can do so from the shop Chera Treasures. Michal Emanuel, thank you very much for being on the programme today. It's a pleasure. Lovely speaking to you.
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, let's take a moment to appreciate some culture, shall we? On Thursday, the 27th of February, JW3 will welcome the Ensemble Boletta, which presents a show entitled Farewell to Vienna, A New Beginning, and it will feature the music of Mozart and Brahms through one of the darkest periods in Austria's history. It's part of the Insiders Outsiders Festival, which is a nationwide arts festival which has been taking place since March last year to March of this year. To find out more about the evening and the ideas behind the festival, we can speak to Lucy Hewson, a violinist from Ensemble Boletta, who joins us now. It's lovely to speak to you. What is it all about? Why are we doing it? Well, we, Ensemble Boletta recorded the Hanskal clarinet quintet in 2016, and the whole programme for this concert sort of grew out of that. So Hans Gall was a Jewish composer who fled from Vienna in 1938. And we also ended up with the music of Joseph Horowitz, who also fled from Vienna in 1938. And doing the research for the programme notes for this concert, the two ideas seem really interesting because Hans Gall was a... Well, he was in his 50s when he came to this country. And Joseph was a 12-year-old boy. And the idea of someone who was already established in his career and his music had been banned by the Nazis and he'd had to flee. And a 12-year-old boy who, at that point, I don't think had much interest in music beyond his piano lessons. <laughs> the idea that he came to this country and became part of the, sort of the musical establishment here and a great educator, we just found really interesting. What exactly are you trying to, apart from that, <laughs> what exactly are you trying to prove about what happened to Jewish musicians in Vienna at that time, at the time of the Nazis? I don't think we were particularly trying to prove what happened to the Jewish musicians then. We're more interested, really, in what happened to them after they came to this country. But with our, our programme, we also have the music of, well, we have Mozart, Bach, Fugues, which is very much the Viennese tradition, and also the music of Brahms, you know, and it's all part of that rich Viennese melting pot. And we really want, wanted to show sort of where Gal and Horowitz's music was coming from, but we're also sort of really embracing this, this new beginning they had in, in Britain. So you're doing it by the concerts, by the music? Yes, it's, it's a purely musical concert. We're a clarinet quintet, so yeah, clarinet and string quartets, and it's a very classical concert. How many... Con- is there any one concert in, in...? We're actually performing in the Midlands. We're performing in Worcester on the 9th of February as well, also as part of the Insiders Outsiders Festival. When we sort of joined the two ideas together, our concert programme, and we discovered the Insiders Outsiders Festival... We felt it didn't really sort of cover the music of the period enough. I think the director is an art historian, an art historian, and we just, you know, we felt we'd quite liked our programme really sort of fitted the whole festival idea and it was good to represent some music as well as art. Now, were there there very many Viennese or Austrian composers, conductors, musical soloists taking part at that time? Who came to this country? I think there were very, very many. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a music historian. I'm just a classical violinist. <laughs> so, you know, I haven't really got the background to talk about that. But it, there, was, there was a big community of people that just had to leave. You know, I mean, Hans Gahl's music had been banned by the Nazis in 1933. And his career had been, you know, it had stalled. He, he lost his professorships in Germany. And, yeah, it was, it was difficult for him. So I think a lot of people came over, people went to America as well. So I think Britain really benefited from that culture. And it's also interesting, Hans Gahl especially, he ended up in Edinburgh and he, he helped found the Edinburgh Festival. And I think a lot of the people that he knew from Austria and Germany who had come over, he got some fantastic people playing up in Edinburgh. It really boosted the musical scene here. Tell us something about the production itself and what we will see on the evening. Well, or it, I should say here on the evening. It will be more hearing. <laughs> yes. It's a very straight classical concert, to be honest. We're opening with the Bach Mozart fugues, which are just a, the most amazing sort of 
oh, wide open sort of quite a solemn introduction to the music. It's a great way to set up a concert. Then after that, we we will play the Hansgauer Clarinet Quintet, which is just this wonderful sort of lyrical special piece. It's very very rarely played. Yeah, that's interesting because that's a piece that I, when you said it, I thought mm-hmm. I know a little bit about music. Yes, but I don't think I've ever heard of that. Then I thought I'm not going to admit that, but I am going to admit it. <laughs> to be honest, I hadn't heard of it before we started playing it. It's interesting. Our first violinist. Kathleen is actually married to Hans Gell's grandson. So there's a bit of a family connection there. Um, so I think there's, there's a great interest in, in promoting the music of Hans Gell in the family because it has been pretty neglected. It just didn't fit in the... Why has it, it, it's, it's worth asking you, why has it been neglected? I think it, he comes really strongly from that sort of late... 1800s, early 1900s tradition of music. And after the Second World War, music just, it took a bit of a, bit of a sort of crazy turn. It became a bit atonal. He just wasn't fashionable at that time. He, he just, yeah, his music didn't really light people's fire. It was getting a bit minimal and strange. So he's quite traditional, really. And all right, then, well, tell, us, tell us about some of the other pieces of music that will be played at the concert. Okay, so... Interesting, Hans Gall's clarinet quintet was composed in 1977, right at the end of his life. And then after that, we moved to Joseph Horowitz's Concertante for Clarinet and Strings, which he composed in 1948. He was finishing his studies at the Royal College of Music. He was just starting to go seriously down the sort of musical avenue. And it's very jokey, I think you could describe it as. It's a, it's a very different piece, has little episodes of sort of quirky things happening. Where did your interest in this music come from? <laughs> well, I did study a bit of music history at university, but it's it's playing the music. I mean, like I said, I knew nothing about Hans Gell. I knew nothing about Joseph Horowitz. To be honest, I hadn't played much Brahms, but you know, so it's been wonderful <laughs> discovering his fantastic clarinet, Brahms's fantastic clarinet quintet. It's just wonderful to learn the, about the music from the inside outwards. Yes. So. Uh, what happens after this? Are there going to be more concerts like this? Well, the Insiders Outsiders Festival sort of winds up in March 2020. We'd have loved to do, have done more concerts, but we will take this programme elsewhere and we have other programmes. And we'd very much like to record Joseph Horowitz's Concertante. I don't believe it's been recorded for clarinet and string quartet. So we're trying to pursue that. And we're also quite interested in other pieces of slightly neglected music often by Jewish composers. So we've got quite a few exciting avenues to explore. You won't actually be playing any of the famous, you know what I mean by famous, the famous Jewish composers from before the 20th century. Mm. I mean, people like Mendelssohn. <laughs> I know he, yes. he, became, he converted, but he was a Jew. Yes, not this time round, but maybe another time. <laughs> well, can we put that idea into your head? Yes, absolutely, please do. <laughs> And then we can have lots and lots and lots of, the, of, of concerts by all these great composers and musicians. That would be amazing. We do have quite, well, presuming people enjoy it, we've got quite a special encore up our sleeve, actually, so you'll enjoy it. <laughs> it's been fascinating talking to you. If anybody wants to know more about it, where, where can they go? And what, how do you hear about it? So there's information on the JW3 website, which is jw3.org.uk Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. A Holocaust memorial service with the Mayor of Tower Hamlets had to be cancelled in recent weeks after the ceiling of the East London Central Synagogue collapsed. Plaster came crashing down in the building in Nelson Street in Whitechapel, which has left the building potentially dangerous. The question is, what happened to the 97-year-old building and how are they going to go about repairing it? I am delighted to say that we can now speak to Leon Silver, who is the president of East London Central Synagogue, who can tell us a bit more about it. Leon, firstly tell us a bit more about your synagogue. Well, it's the only purpose-built synagogue remaining in the whole of Tower Hamlets. There are just three synagogues left, but the other two weren't purpose-built. So ours is 
really quite historic. Some 20 other shawls over the years have closed and amalgamated with Nelson Street. Until now, in fact, even the plaster work was intact and had survived the Blitz. And God willing, in three years' time, the synagogue will be 100 years old. So it's a very important building. It's widely used, not so much as a synagogue. We are open every Shabbat and for festival services. There isn't a large Jewish community left in the area, but we have many school visits, walking tours. It's widely used and respected by the wider community in Tower Hamlets. In fact, I've even received a letter from one and an email from the other of the two local members of Parliament, both saying how much Nelson Street Synagogue, which is you know, how we generally refer to the East London Central, how much it is valued and how important a building it is within Tel Hamlets. You, you say you, you're still open on a Shabbat. How many members do you have? Yes. We still have a reasonable number of members. I can't say offhand off, off the top of my head, but membership isn't the same as congregation. No. A lot of members have moved away over the years, and many now are really quite elderly. I, you know, I'm not a young man myself. And, of course, with all shawls, some people belong for burial society rights, yes. but aren't actually necessarily um, members of the congregation. Yeah. But we, we get a minion, and, you know, a, sometimes quite a few more than that. But obviously, if there was a thriving community, we would be like, when I was a young man, uh, we'd still be open twice a day. Yes, and queuing to get in through the doors, presumably, in those days. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> I remember one, one year, and when I was very young, for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, there were so many people that extra seats had to be put in. You know, and the show does hold several hundred people. So um, those days um, sadly have long gone. Unfortunately, it happened in a lot of cases. Let's go back to this ceiling problem. What do you think happened to make it, make it collapse? Well, I don't know, but I think it was rain coming in. I mean, the roof is in a sorry state. And it was recovered some years ago by the Federation of Synagogues, but the actual repairs hadn't been made. I mean, this now is a priority, because without the roof being repaired, there really isn't much point in rewiring or replastering if the damage is going to happen again. Of course. And presumably you need to raise funds for this to be repaired. Well, yes, but at the moment, there's not much we can do. I mean, I, I, I was there literally just a few minutes ago. I dashed, dashed back uh, for this interview. The building's manager from the Federation came back again, and also a specialist to look at the plaster work and so on. Yeah. But... It, they said, you know, now, of course, there'd have to be some scaffolding put up for a much closer examination. And until they see what actually really needs to be done and what the Federation of Synagogues, you know, are planning to do about it, at this point, there isn't much reason to start fundraising right now from outside. We have to wait and see what the results of the surveys are and what the Federation intend to do, how much funding they are going to put in it, you know, after all, they actually own the building. Mm. And then if we do need extra funding or if we need major funding, that's really the time for all the people who have rung in and emailed offering to try and crowdfund and so on. At a later time, yes, that may well be necessary. Right now, I think it would just confuse things because we don't really know at this point exactly what's needed and what will be happening in terms of funding. And presumably, of course, you don't know how much that's going to be. What are you doing about it'll, holding... It'll, it, it will be substantial, so sorry yeah. to interrupt. That's OK. What are you doing about holding services? I'm assuming you can't um, use the synagogue. No, we can't. So there's Bevis Marks and there's Sanders Row. So people can go to those services, meanwhile, um, short term. If it's going to be a really long-term project, 
then we have to consider whether we should actually hire a, a Vuma somewhere purely so that our congregation can be held together yeah. and you know and carry on until the building's available. Yes. Um, but, but at the moment, um, last Shabbos we went to Sandy's Row. And I will at some point also go to Bevis Marks. I'm, I must say, the rabbi of Bevis Marks rang as soon as news of this got out, and he did offer the use of their shawl, including for the Holocaust commemoration. Unfortunately, Bevis Marks is just outside Tower Hamlets. Mm-hmm. It's in the city, and it is a Tower Hamlets interfaith Holocaust commemoration. But then the president of Sandy's Row offered us the use of their shawl, and their synagogue is just within our hamlet, so uh, it was more appropriate to accept that kind offer. So the commemoration, it's still a Nelson Street synagogue event, which we do every year, but we will be using the premises of Sandy's Row thanks to their generous offer. Leon, thank you very much for coming on the programme today. It was a pleasure talking to you, and good luck with everything to raise the funds and get the synagogue repaired. Thank you very much, and thank you for your concern. It's greatly appreciated. Thank Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, Jewish school children are being encouraged to wear their uniforms inside out. It's in support of a mental health campaign launched by our next guest, or guests, I should say, and it's their sister and aunt who sadly took her own life nearly four years ago. Jenny Jackson had just turned 40 and had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder when she sadly passed away in 2016. To find out more about Jenny and what our community's pupils are being encouraged to do in her memory, I'm honoured to say that we can now speak to her sister, Jo Novick, and her niece, Ariella Novick. Ladies, thank you so much, because I never take for granted when people are prepared to speak about this sort of loss, because for those who don't know, outside of the Jewish views, I do a lot of work in this sort of area anyway in radio and it means a lot so let me say that first and foremost so thank you i need to start by establishing who we are honoring here so joe why not tell us a bit about your sister okay so this campaign of inside out day is in memory of jenny but it's also in memory of other people that we know who've taken their life and and just to stop everyone to realize that no one knows how people are feeling on the inside and it's okay not to be okay and to go and talk to someone so jenny had bipolar but she most of the time her illness she was fine and other times it wasn't so great but and we always knew when she wasn't so great but obviously this time we didn't And that's why when I was put in touch with a charity called If You Care Share, which is a small charity in Newcastle about suicide, they'd had a inside out suicide day, which really resonated with me. Theirs was more just to get people to talk. But as the years have gone on and Ariel has lost a friend and my other two, I've got two older kids as well who know people who've lost people and I've lost colleagues with you know, their nieces. I just wanted to do more to help people. And um, the campaign that we're doing is, it stems from this If You Care Share on the Inside Out Day, just to make children and adults alike to basically stop and think that not everyone looks, how they're looking on the outside is, is how they're feeling on the inside. Now, the problem is, of course, is that there is this, well, I'm sorry to say, there's quite an ignorant attitude, I think, on the part of the community that sort of says that well, we're Jewish, this doesn't happen to us. And of course, one taking one's life can affect any community. It doesn't stigmatise, doesn't really care what your background is. It is a perfectly, unfortunately, natural human emotion that someone may think the way that your sister did. Ariella, would you say that you are aware of this sort of occurrence, for want of a better term, based on what's happened with your aunt and with friends or would you say that actually it's only since then that you've learned about it i'd say well since then i've learned more about mental health but but even before then i was i was quite young i was in year eight when it happened i'd say that i still knew about it but obviously once my auntie passed away i wanted to learn more and i think nowadays i'd say once you get into the older years of secondary school you want to learn more about like mental health and about other people around you. Which is also quite a stark contrast in the mainstream anyway from many years ago, Joe, because, of course, 
you know, I, I don't exactly consider myself to be that old, but my goodness me, even as recently as when I was at school, no one spoke about anything to do with suicide or mental health problems or anything. It just wasn't spoken about. It didn't matter. All I got told, if I was feeling a bit glum, was, oh, buck up, you're a boy, get on with it. That sort of attitude. No, We've come on a long way, hopefully, I think. Yeah, and I completely agree. I think even, you know, when Jenny had bipolar, she was embarrassed by it, and it wasn't often talked about. And since she's died there's been a lot more it's become much more open in the media and just people around and it is okay not to be okay and it's really important to talk about it i think social media plays a big part in both ways by actually showing about mental health and either just the problems people are facing or you know you hear probably once a month of someone who else has committed suicide in the paper but also social media doesn't help as well because it can disguise how someone is feeling or how you know you can post pictures or show what they're doing and it gives a good it it can make people look like they're really happy and having wonderful lives but actually down you know underneath they're not doing so it's just to make nowadays I think with children you know I've, I've got four children and three are in their teenage years but you know I see them looking to see how and my nieces and nephews as well how many likes they've got on snapchat or instagram or whatever it is and views and 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 social media become can become addictive and it's just to realize actually it's it's okay social media is good in one way but also just to step back and reflect that that actually might not be the true true reflection of someone and ariel i have to assume and please correct me if i'm wrong that you are obviously part of generation social media and therefore you some might say have an advantage over your peers knowing that this sort of pressure does exist and of course it leads to the most horrible outcomes how has that made you shall we say change maybe your attitude towards social media if at all or do you just use it with acute awareness i say i use social media a lot i haven't stopped using it just because of the awareness of mental health i think if you use it in the right way it can be positive it just depends on what on how you use it so i'd say like some friends would use it to hide their emotions but then other people use it to express their emotions it just depends what type of person you are i think social media is a factor within mental health it's not sort of something that can worsen it or make it better i think it just depends on how you use it and i also i think that we shouldn't let this detract from actually what we are here to talk about which of course is the campaign to encourage Mm. school children from across the community and beyond by the sound of it to wear uniforms inside out can you tell us a little bit about this because when is this happening and when should people be doing that or is this just wear your uniform inside out on any random day so inside out day is on thursday february the 6th during children's mental health week and we're encouraging schools and also companies and any football clubs drama clubs whatever it is across the country to get involved in it and we've we've already got 60 schools across the country involved in it and we've got some good you know we've got people who are supporting the campaign like Johnny Benjamin is helping with it now so people are, are taking note and we've got TES which is the Times Educational Resource for Schools they're also promoting it for us because they believe it's a good thing too so we've got a lot of people sort of backing the campaign because they think it's a very good idea because it's a simple and easy way to engage children just to make them stop and think and actually just be kind to yourself as well as being kind to others because no one knows how someone is feeling on the inside and of course we have to hope that we hope we avoid any element of confusion where of course just some children uh, may be too relaxed to realize they're wearing their uniform inside out <laughs> anyway and that they True. may have just turned up with it by sheer dumb luck but let's of course actually chat about how the day itself works it is literally everything from top to bottom as it were worn inside out is that how it is Is what's the idea no the idea is well anyone can do what they want to do it's optional it's very we've kept it very easy I said it's an easy campaign so you can either just wear a blazer inside out or a jumper inside out it's just to be aware that you're looking at something oh it's just making people stop and think and some schools are doing assemblies we're providing a presentation to some schools with it as well if they want to use that too just to get people just to get kids to realise that actually not everyone's okay and it is okay not to be okay and just to go and talk to someone if they don't feel great. And presumably is it just about raising awareness or is this also about potentially raising funds as well? There's an optional £1 donation to If You Care Share Charity but it's optional. It's more about raising awareness that if you're not okay you can speak out and there's always someone to speak to. 
Well, look, I mean, you clearly are doing remarkable work by highlighting this. And I suppose the last thing that we have to finish on, because you've obviously been through what you've been through. And I would say that if anyone is listening to this, who potentially is feeling very down, I think that's the most polite way I can put it, because I don't want to use any of the typical cliche words. What would you say to them? Because... They are, I'm guessing you would believe, and I believe, certainly, they are not alone. So what would you advise them? They're not alone, not to be embarrassed, and just to go and speak to someone. They would, un- Whoever you feel comfortable talking to, go and speak to. People understand and will try and help you and guide you for the right support. Thank you both very much indeed. I would suggest that if you are unsure of where to turn to, then certainly a good starting place, if you have been affected by anything you've heard in this interview, would either be the Samaritans or indeed Jamie, which of course is the Jewish Association for Mental Illness. One way or another, both those charities do amazing work, and I'm perfectly convinced that they would be a much better place to start. But for now, I have to say thank you very much indeed for your candidness, for your honesty, and for your just being here, frankly. Joe and Ariella Novik, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, it's around this time of the program each month where we hear from our Jewish domestic goddess, Denise Phillips. What's on the menu this month, Denise? As February is the month we focus on love, I thought I would talk about the life cycle of food and love. There's no getting away from these two basic human needs which are so intrinsically linked. Having spent nearly 18 years in the dating business, I want you to share some interesting anecdotes of food and romance. Dare I say, it all starts with the mother, as she passes on her genetic likes and dislikes to her newborn. When pregnant, it is known fact. Whatever a mother eats during this time, and when breastfeeding, there are afterwards, can influence the child and their preferences, their likes, allergies and cultural food habits. And as a child, the fussy you are as an eater sometimes continues into adolescence and adulthood. And subsequently, the more difficulty it is to have a successful relationship with love and food. First dates can be a nerve-wracking experience. Searching for the right place to eat or even to eat much at all. Eating habits, how they hold their knife and fork. Messy eating, food in their teeth. Dishes with poppy seeds or spinach are not a good choice. Eating before your partner. Or spending time together on date night. Home cooking. Do you remember an early relationship? Searching for the right menu. Recipe to impress. And of course, a recipe that you can cook well. Spending time, not just on Valentine's Day, is an opportunity to wake up romance and romantic times. We then move on to what is called the middle stages of love and food. This is when you relax and the term newlywed spread takes over. Your genes get tighter. An American survey in North Carolina in 2017, which analysed 8,000 couples, showed that 43% of women put weight on during the first year of a new relationship, compared with 29% of men. And again, the relationship with food changes when the relationship perhaps breaks up or comes to an end. Most of us have to deal with heartbreak in our lives, where the last thing you want to do is eat. One survey showed that you can lose around four pounds in the first month of splitting up with someone, all to do with the brain. Too much adrenaline suppresses the appetite. There is also the love hormone, which is a natural stimulant, and here is when acceptance has set in and then you reach for the crispy creams or chocolates and try to recreate those happy feelings that being in a relationship brings. Added to this we crave sugar, carbohydrates and fatty foods. We are stressed. Food is soothing. As you can see food has a huge connection between love, romance and relationships. It's a complex one but hopefully you now have a better understanding. So if you'd like to come to a cookery class for you and your partner or just as a couple, I'm doing one on Thursday, the 13th of February. Come and join me. 
wake up those romantic times. Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips there. And you may be interested to know that Denise regularly runs her date on a plate events. So if you're feeling somewhat festive for Valentine's Month, then go to jewishcookery.com for more information. It's time now for our rabbinic thought for the month, and it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London, Masorti Synagogue. Since childhood, I've always loved trees. Perhaps it was my father making me pick the gooseberries or my aunt putting teddy bears in our teddy bear tree. But I've been a tree lover and a tree hugger all my life. In fact, I'll go for walks in the dark among the oaks and among the birches, and I love to hear them speak. The Midrash talks about trees that used to communicate with humankind and all nature. Now we have to listen very carefully if we're not to fail to hear the important voice of trees in our world. Trees, of course, are central to Judaism, starting with the Eitz Chaim, the tree of life, and the Eitz Hadat, the tree of knowledge in the midst of the garden. In fact, to the mystics, they were just one and the same tree. The knowledge we acquire is the knowledge of the deeper spiritual, ethical and moral life that inhabits all creation and that ought to inhabit our soul. But today we're living in a world in which we're realising that we have undervalued the preciousness of all trees, and that we urgently need to replant. Reports by Professor Crowther in Switzerland have indicated that trillions of trees are needed, and some of them are in countries where there's a large Jewish population, not just Israel, but the United States, Canada, Britain and Ireland, our own home countries, which are under-treed to a large measure. So, with Tu February the month of trees, close by us, maybe... We can move from planting trees in Israel to making our contribution as communities and as a religion to helping plant trees across the world. They are, after all, wonderful things. And we, as people, we want to have our roots, we want to have our leaves, we want to reach towards the sky. So I identify with trees even as I love planting them. I've planted in my garden at the synagogue in the hills around Jerusalem and I'm looking forward later to planting near Stratford-upon-Avon in this country. I've been partly responsible for launching JTree, that's JTree.global, which is operating now in the States, in this country, to encourage our communities to plant thousands and thousands of trees. The issue is really our future. We talk about teaching the Torah to our children, but we also need our children to have a world in which it's possible to live and thrive and commune with nature as we like to do and as our ancestors have liked to do. So the question to my mind is... Eitz HaChayim, the tree of life which represents Torah, but also the real trees that make the air breathable. Can we help plant them? Can we replant the tree of life? Thank you very much to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Masorti Synagogue with our thought for the month. And that's it for this episode of The Jewish Views. Thank you very much to all of our guests, to Deborah Baines, who is talking about AJR's My Story and Second Generation project, to Michael Emmanuel from the KLBD, Lucy Hewson from Ensemble Berletta, and also we mustn't forget Leon Silva from the East London Central Synagogue talking about the sad collapse of their roof. So if you can help in any way, I'm sure they'd be most grateful and of course last but by absolutely no means least we must also thank our other guests joe and ariella novik very bravely talking to us about their family's recent loss and what you can do in order to raise awareness for mental health and of course thank you goes as well to our jewish domestic goddess denise phillips and to you at home for listening and we certainly mustn't forget to thank our producer sue greenberg who works tirelessly putting this program together don't forget if you would like to listen to this episode or indeed any previous episode of the jewish views then you can always visit our website jewishviews.co.uk and please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application the jewish views is brought to you in association with jw3 but from me phil dave from me tony honigberg and me clive roslin we do hope you'll join us next time here on the jewish views goodbye <laughs>